0: You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This episode features discussions of why light has a speed limit, whether there's a maximum temperature, how GPS works, and other topics in physics and astronomy. Let's have a listen why is there an ultimate speed limit of the speed of light well it's a good question uh the um in in well the ultimate answer is we don't know it's a feature of our universe it's a very important feature of our universe um and we don't know why it works that way now having said that in for example my new Theory of how physics works, um, we can understand. Well, at some um, yeah, we can understand a little bit more about why there's a maximum speed. So, so the speed of light, maximum speed that anything can go at in our universe. How big is the speed of light? The thing that's worth if you're going to remember one of these factoids about um, um, uh, light goes one foot in one billionth of a second. So in one nanosecond, light goes one foot. So that means in, um, uh, in one second, light goes a billion feet. Um, and uh, it takes, so for example, to give some sense of scale, um, it takes light eight minutes to go from the sun to the Earth. It takes light, uh, what is it, about a couple of seconds? No, it's, gosh, I have to work it out. Um, maybe half a second or a second to go to the moon. Um, So light goes fast, but not at infinite speed. Um, And uh, uh, to go across our whole universe takes a time that's about the age of the universe, about 14 billion years. Um, Actually, it takes even longer than that to go all the way across our universe. Um, But, uh, uh, that, that's sort of a first approximation to how, how long it takes to go across the universe. But then, um, so uh, what light, the speed of light governs the maximum rate at which we can send signals. Um, so for example, when you, I don't know, like when we're using, when we're using the internet, for example, um, it's often called the ping time on the internet. So one computer will ping another computer. There's a, in low-level operating systems, there's usually a command called ping, and you say ping, and then you say the name of a computer, and it will say, "Oh, it took 200 milliseconds, 200 thousandth of a second, to send a signal to that other computer and get it back again." Okay, so the um, uh, the 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 ping time is is this time for signal to go from your computer to another computer and get back and tell you how long it took. Um, and uh, so, a question is is that in fact is that time that's sort of a uh, that tells you how long it takes for information to go from your computer to another computer and in a first approximation that is at least limit well it's certainly limited by the speed of light you'll never be able to get your computer to ping another computer faster than it would take light to go from your computer to another computer now how is the actual signal sent well um often uh, a lot of signals now are in fiber optic cables. So fiber optics is like normally, you know, you shine a flashlight or something and you're just shining it through the air, but you can also get light to go through glass and you can make these um, uh, fiber optics where um, the light goes into this fiber and it bounces off the edges of the fiber and it keeps bouncing off the edges of the fiber and the light will just keep going through this fiber. And so you can actually have a single fiber that can be like a, uh, probably these days a hundred miles long and you can just shine light in one end of that fiber, and the the glass is is in the fiber is sufficiently pure that the light will just keep going, keep going. It'll bounce off the walls, but you won't lose any light, and you'll still be able to get, um, and you'll get the light out at the other end. And so a lot of the internet is built with fiber optic cables, where the um, the speed of light, uh, where where it's light that's transmitting the signals that's telling you know that's going from from my computer camera to um, uh, onto the the internet and so on and so on and so on. Now, actually a little bit of a footnote to that, light, um, the speed of light that you hear about, you know, one foot and a nanosecond and so on, that's the speed of light in a vacuum. It's very close to the speed of light in air. The speed of light in air is a little bit slower, but the speed of light in other materials is considerably slower. Like in water, it's 33% slower, than in, in a vacuum. And uh, in glass, it's typically about um, uh, uh, 50% slower. Well, it's, the, it's called the refractive index, which is the ratio of the speed of light in a vacuum compared to the speed of light in the material. So for glass, it's between 1.5 and 1.7 usually. Um, and uh, so that means that when, when light is going through glass, it's not going at its full speed of light speed. It's going at uh, one and a half times slower than that speed. Why does that happen? Reason it happens is that um, in something like glass, the light is continually getting absorbed by an atom, re-emitted by the atom. So what happens is the light hits an atom, it makes the atom, uh, it it, uh, puts the atom in a new state where the atom says, I just absorbed a photon of light. and uh, it takes the atom just a little bit of time to re-emit that photon of light and so it's like it's playing some kind of relay type thing where the light is falling on one atom takes the atom a little bit of time to emit that light again and keeps going and that's how light gets transmitted through something like glass um and that's why the light is not going at the official speed of light in glass but anyway so the ping times on the internet um are roughly Roughly determined by the speed of light in glass. Now, it's that's not the whole story because what happens is the um, it's not just going through this one cable. It also has to go through electronics that tell it which cable to go through and figure out how to switch things and so on. Um, and actually, a lot of the time, the um, a lot of the time that's taken in communicating between computers is actually inside that switching stuff rather than the actual transmission along the fibers. But the actual transmission along the fibers does take some time, and you can, you can detect that. As you look at you know, websites that are further away from you physically, um, you'll find that it takes longer to, um, uh, the ping times will tend to get longer. So somebody's got to ask the question, what is spin? Okay, you want me to, you want me to tell you what it actually is? I'll, I'll tell you just because it's fun to hear the words. So the, um, uh, a particle, like an electron, has a... Uh, Each electron has a certain mass. All electrons have the same mass. And um, the, uh, well, the official definition of spin, it is which irreducible representation of the Poincare group does the electron uh, uh, transform a I I can use all the fancy words. I'm not going to use these fancy words because this is absolutely useless. Um, Let me try and explain. So, in a sense, those fancy words tell us that spin is something that is sort of understood in terms of mathematics and in terms of fairly abstract concepts. So I, I have a guess about what spin really is in terms of the way that space is built and so on. I don't yet know if it's completely correct, but let me tell you kind of the, the, the standard, well, let me tell you a mixture of kind of what spin is. So, so roughly, you can have an object, let's say, I don't know if you know, um, like a top. A top can be spinning around, right? Top spins around. And um, one of the things that happens with a top is it just likes keep it likes to keep on spinning just the way it's been spinning. And that's similar to if you throw something, it will tend to keep going in the direction that you threw it, at least until gravity makes it turn turn in a different direction. That's so the reason it does that, one way to explain that, is it's conservation of, of linear momentum. There's this idea of momentum. When things, when things are moving, It's, um, uh, it's a, uh, the, the mass and velocity combined together make momentum. And so a massive object going in some direction will tend to keep going in that direction. There's a, in, in physics, there's a conservation of momentum. So things starts going in that direction, it will keep going in that direction. The, um, Okay, so that's linear momentum. There's also a conservation of angular momentum. When you start something spinning, it will tend to keep on spinning. Okay, if you have a top, for example, the top will eventually stop spinning. And the reason for that is there's friction. If the top is just spinning on a little point, there's friction between that will tend to slow down, friction, for example, between the point and the table, or friction because the top is moving in the air, um, that will tend to slow the top down. But if there wasn't any friction, if you had this top spinning in space um the uh uh then then the thing would just keep spinning around um it would keep spinning kind of forever that's conservation of, of angular momentum okay i have to tell you a story a friend of mine who's an astronaut uh used to be an astronaut um had an experience with spin in space that was uh was a was a uh, one of these figure out physics in real time kinds of experiences. So he was on the space station called Mer, which was a Russian space station. It was a predecessor of the current International Space Station. Um, and um, he was on the space station. And uh, the space station was, um, uh, there was some accident on the space station. And that caused the space station to start rotating, to start spinning. And in fact, because there wasn't any air to slow it down, there was nothing to slow it down. The space station just kept on spinning. And so it was, a, it was a big question, how should they stop the space station spinning? And um, in fact, uh, my friend was used our Mathematica program to, uh, to figure out, and you have to be a very uh, kind of cool cucumber of an astronaut to be hanging out in a space station that's spinning around and to get out your computer and start writing down differential equations and solve the equations and things and figure out, yes, if we uh, fire this thruster in this direction, then we'll, um, uh, we'll stop the space station spinning um, but he succeeded in doing that and figured out um, uh, figured out just by using the math equations how to stop that space station spinning and then of course the, the story would be much better if, if uh, he'd been able to implement what he, what he figured out and that had worked but in fact the Russian ground controllers who were um, you know in charge of what happened to their space station were like no you can't do that. That's not our procedure. We have a procedure for what to do. Well, we don't know exactly what it is, but anyway, after, after a day or so, they managed to use some other procedure, but it was kind of a shame that, that the uh, differential equations for, for solved in real time to stop the spinning space station never actually got able to be implemented. Um, but in any case, so, so in, in large scale objects, there's this idea of angular momentum and there's a conservation of angular momentum. Okay, when you have a very small object, like an electron, electrons also spin around. But when you have a big object, like a space station, you can make it spin faster or you can make it spin slower. When you have an object like an electron, for reasons that we don't yet fully understand, you can effectively only give it one particular amount of angular momentum. So all electrons have, in the units of angular momentum that's used for electrons, they have half a unit of angular momentum. So all electrons have half a unit of angular momentum. They can actually be, um, essentially, they can be either plus half a unit or minus half a unit. Uh, th- that whole story is a little bit complicated with quantum mechanics. But, but uh, roughly, uh, I think it's fair to say an electron has half a unit of angular momentum. A proton also has half a unit of angular momentum. Uh, photons have one unit of angular momentum. Uh, Gravitons, the particles that make up gravity waves, um, they have two units of angular momentum. Um, And the number of units of angular momentum that a particle has um, has a big effect on how the particle works. And the the most important um, effect is if you have an integer number, a whole number of of units of angular momentum, uh, you're a thing called a boson. If you have half half integer number of units of angular momentum, you're a thing called a fermion. Okay, what's the difference? What's the big difference between bosons and fermions? Basically, bosons are super social and like to clump together, and fermions are kind of super antisocial and like to stay apart. Okay, why do we care? Well, the reason we care about fermions staying apart, like things like electrons and protons and so on, is that most matter that we deal with, atoms and things, are made of fermions. And the fact that they like to stay apart is what causes matter to not all collapse. So there's a thing called the exclusion principle that basically says when you have fermions, uh, things like electrons, things with half integer spin, um, they will never want to be sort of all stuck together in, this, in the same place. They'll always want to be, be, um, uh, be sort of forced apart. And that's what it's a large part of what leads to the stability of matter that leads to having actual objects that don't sort of just collapse. Okay, so that's what happens with half-integer spin things. With, with whole-integer spin things, I mentioned that photons have spin one. Uh, photons are examples of bosons. Photons are the particles of light. They're examples of bosons. And um, uh, bosons have the property that if you have one boson, it really wants to have other bosons be right there in the same state, right on top of it. Okay, so you might say, well, so what? Well, the main so what of that is that's how lasers work. Um, Lasers, the word laser stands for light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. And what's happening there is that in a laser, you're trying to get lots of photons to all be in exactly the same state, all being going in exactly the same direction, all shine out of the front of the laser, so to speak. And it's because photons are bosons. That it's possible to these electrons really like kind of clumping together and all being in the same state and all making this coherent laser light that you produce in a laser so that these two so the spin is this property of particles that has to do with angular momentum and it really matters whether things have half a unit of spin or one unit of spin and that um uh, that's a very well, if you study theoretical physics in graduate school, you might hear about a thing called the spin statistics theorem which is a uh, which is the the um uh, which is the piece of mathematics that shows that there's a connection between the the spin of a particle and whether it wants to be clumped together or stay apart um, I could mention one more thing about that, which might be too complicated but um uh Well, okay, just a a thing, if you're curious, you can look up, there are things called spinners. And normally, when we have something in ordinary three-dimensional space, and we rotate it around, we rotate 180 degrees, it's backwards, we rotate it 360 degrees, it comes back to where it started from again, okay? Um, Turns out, for things like electrons, they don't work that way. They actually, when you turn them around by, um, uh, by, 360 degrees they don't come back to where they started from you need to turn them around by 720 degrees You need to turn them around uh, Essentially two full revolutions before they come back to where they started from again And that's a a weird and interesting phenomenon that I could talk about some other time All right, there's a question here. Is there a maximum temperature? Okay, that one I can answer Um, Okay, so let's talk about what temperature is I actually talked about that in the last one of these a little bit so when you have a bunch of atoms, temperature is basically the energy with which those atoms are, uh, are bouncing around. Roughly the speed with which the atoms are bouncing around. So in air, uh, we take, let, let's take uh, water. Um, in steam, the atoms are running around really pretty fast. It's a gas. You cool it down the atoms are running around a bit slower and they're kind of being stuck together a bit and that makes liquid water. If you cool the atoms down even further, they'll tend to just be, uh, they'll tend to not run around very much at all and they'll be kind of locked in place and that makes solid ice. Okay, so temperature is, it's actually the, the, uh, uh, the average kinetic energy, the average energy of motion of, the atoms or molecules in a substance, and um, or whatever is making up the substance, um, so that's so temperature is associated with these microscopic motions in um, uh, in a material, and the the um, uh, so that means there's a there's a an absolute zero, a minimum temperature, because there's a temperature at which you've taken all of that energy of motion out, and the atoms are just staying completely still, and so. I think I mentioned last time, um, the, uh, so that means most materials turn into solids when you take them down to absolute zero of temperature. Absolute zero is minus 273.16 uh, degrees centigrade. Uh, so it gets, it's very cold. Um, and, and, and for example, you know, as you, so for example, when you cool air down, air, there's mostly nitrogen and oxygen, um, becomes... Uh, uh, minus 170 degrees centigrade is that right i have to look that up um i think that's the temperature at which air um, becomes liquid um and um let's see 77 kelvins i think is that right no oh, i'm forgetting sorry um i have to look that up i can type it into Wolfram alpha and look that up um but uh okay so there's a temperature at which air becomes liquid there's a temperature below that at which air becomes solid. Um, those, those temperatures correspond to the molecules getting slower and slower and slower. Okay. All right. Is there a maximum temperature? Okay. So, well, when you heat stuff up, the, um, uh, uh, what's going to happen? The molecules are going to go faster and faster and faster. Boy, this is actually tricky. This is this is graduate level physics. Sorry, I, it, it's um uh, okay. So, what um, um you put more and more energy into these into these atoms? Well, first of all, uh, as you put too much energy, in, the atoms will fall apart, and it'll just be because when you the atoms are are held together by a certain amount of force, and when you when you try and when you put in too much temperature. Um, the atoms are sort of torn apart. It's what happens in fire and things like that. It makes a plasma where the the electrons are torn out of the atoms. Okay, but when you make things hot enough, everything gets torn apart. Even atomic nuclei get torn apart. When you make things even hotter, even the the quarks and gluons inside protons and things get sort of torn apart. Um, But so when everything is really, really hot, things get torn apart, but these particles electrons, whatever they are, uh, quarks, whatever, they can just keep going and you can just pump more and more and more energy into those particles. So actually, in the usual theory of physics, there is not a maximum temperature. You can just keep on pumping more and more and more energy into into particles. There used to be a theory that there was a maximum temperature, um, and that came about, ah, let's see how to explain this. Okay, basically the idea was, we know about protons and neutrons and electrons, but they're actually a whole zoo of other kinds of particles. Most of those particles are unstable, they decay in millionths of a second, or trillionths of a second, or trillion trillionths of a second, most of them are unstable, but there's a whole giant zoo of other particles. They have names like the sigma hyperon, the lambda hyperon, the cascade hyperon, the kaon, the, pion the f meson the g meson there's a whole giant zoo of these things but when i was a kid i was really into these kinds of particles and i used to know all about these things i i um uh it was um uh, i have a i have a decent memory so i still remember you know the masses and properties of a bunch of these particles it's a little bit um uh, they've been measured vastly more accurately than they were known when i was a kid um but in any case there's a whole zoo of these particles okay and it used to be thought that maybe as you increase the temperature of something instead of the temperature instead of the energy going into producing um uh producing um uh making particles go faster instead that energy would go into producing more kinds of particles and actually if you've heard of string theory one of the kind of mathematical theories that's thought about a bit in in fundamental physics string theory the original version of string theory Came out of a theory of particles in which there were just a whole zoo of more and more and more and more particles. So it used to be thought at one time that there was a maximum possible temperature at which you would be producing new kinds of particles rather than the same kinds of particles going faster. That theory turns out not to be correct. Um, it's an interesting question whether, in my theory of physics, whether there is ultimately a maximum temperature. Um, what is the answer to that? The answer is that there will be. Um, let's see. Yes, actually I, okay. Let me answer two, two different related questions here. So one place where things got really hot was in the very early universe. When the universe was, was just started, there was this big bang. Nobody knows why that happened, but it was a sort of giant explosion that started the universe. And when the universe was very small and very young, it was also very hot. And as time has gone on, the universe has cooled down and it's cooled down, it's cooled down. At this point, the sort of, uh, if you just go into space, space is not at an absolute zero of temperature. Space is at about three degrees Kelvin, three Kelvins, which is uh, minus 270 degrees centigrade, three degrees above absolute zero. That's the, that's the effective temperature of space. And the reason it's not at absolute zero is that it still has. Sort of the the remnants of the heat that came from the Big Bang in the at the beginning of the universe is still is still there um, in the uh, in the in essentially the the uh, well photons the microwave um, the the radio energy in the universe that's still sort of a relic of of the Big Bang. Although by now because the universe has expanded a lot it's really cooled down so it's only three degrees above absolute zero. But um, in the in the very early universe the universe was really 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 hot. In fact, probably in some sense, infinitely hot. Um, now you're going to ask me to do some kind of advanced physics in real time of, of physics theory that is um, is not yet fully developed. But I think in my theory of fundamental physics, there is a, an, a there is a maximum temperature, and I think that that maximum temperature. Uh, let me think about this for a second. Um, yes, yes, there will be a maximum temperature. And it will be, um, let's see, the reason there's a maximum temperature, I mean, the maximum temperature will be unbelievably huge compared to anything that we can observe in the universe, with the possible exception that at the edge of a black hole, one might see some phenomenon associated with that. I have to think about that. That is a good question. Thank you. That's my homework, I think, is to figure out, in my theory of how space time works, um, how maximum temperature works. Is there a maximum location accuracy for a GPS system? Um, the OK. OK. First of all, let me, for people, um, uh, let me explain again a little bit about how GPS works. GPS, the global positioning system, uh, that's a, 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 an American network of satellites. Um, and there's actually a European one, and there's a Russian one, I think. Um, that, uh, but the the GPS is the is the most commonly used one. Okay. So, uh, one big question is how do you know where you are on the Earth? That was a big issue when people were, uh, you know, uh, particularly on the oceans. You know, if, if you're trying to figure out where am I and I'm, you know, near where I, near my house or something, it's like, oh, I know that, that's, you know, I recognize that landmark. But on the ocean, there aren't any landmarks to recognize. So it's much harder to tell where you are. And so what, um, so the main way that people used to tell where they were is by navigating by the stars. And the reason that that will tell you where you are is the stars, as the earth rotates, the, the stars will be at particular, uh, the stars stay at a fixed location. And as the earth turns, you can, um, you can basically see where the stars are. Now, it turns out that um, if you are to know your latitude, that is how far you are from the North Pole or from the equator, the, um, how, how far north you are basically, that's something you can figure out um, just from angles of um, stars as the earth turns. Um, you know where the North Star is, which is roughly aligned with the North Pole, and you can you can figure out um, by seeing what angle the North North, the Polaris, the, the North Pole Star is at, um, or a corresponding thing in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, you can figure out what latitude you're at. It was a big problem for many years to figure out the longitude, because to work out longitude, you have to know what time it is. Um, you have to know um, to know you know this star is overhead. Okay, great but what time does that correspond to? And so there's a big issue of how you can get an accurate enough clock to be able to um, know what time it is. And so there was this big thing to find to create a marine chronometer. And the big issue is clocks used to be, well, they were made with pendulums which swung back and forth, or they're made with, um, uh, with uh, escapements, I guess, these, these sort of springs that, that um, but essentially it's little pendulum type things. And the problem is if you're in a ship and it's on an ocean, and you're being thrown around all over the place. It's really hard to get the clock to keep accurate time, and so people invented these whole elaborate systems to kind of keep the clock uh, from being bounced around too much um, in the ocean and keep it keeping accurate time. And eventually, that problem was solved. Um, but uh, that was a um, uh, that was sort of so that was you know the early and early system for navigation. Okay, so then. Uh, when when aeroplanes started flying, it was there was a need for for navigation for planes. For planes, there's a different scheme that was used. For planes, there are radio navigation beacons. Uh in the US, they're usually called vortex, VHF omnidirectional radio beacons. Um, and the way they work, they're kind of clever actually. You you can see them sometimes. They're they you can see them. They're often near airports, sometimes they're sort of on hillsides and things. They're kind of these things that have a um, they usually have um, a kind of uh, this kind of shape, um, uh, they, they're they radio beacons and they produce a, um, so if you're flying a plane, you uh, back in the, before there was GPS, you would try and get a fix on a radio beacon and you would say, this radio beacon is at this angle to me. And actually these radio beacons have a clever feature that they actually had two different radio frequencies. and as you go around a circle around that radio beacon, the relative, um, these two relative frequencies would change as you go around the circle just by the construction of the radio antenna in the radio beacon. Um, and so that allowed you to tell what angle were you at relative to that radio beacon. And that was a, uh, that was a method of navigation that was used. In fact, still the um, uh, airplanes you might think airplanes can go anywhere in the sky, but actually they tend to follow these these particular sort of airways, which typically are flying from one radio beacon to the next radio beacon in straight lines. Eventually it's going to get figured out how to let planes use GPS and take arbitrary paths, and that will save some fuel and and other good things. But um, but in any case, so that was another scheme. And then GPS was invented um, and GPS is is a different idea. GPS um, is using satellites and okay so how does GPS work basically the um, uh, the satellites so first fact is once you put a satellite in orbit you can compute just with math really pretty accurately where that satellite will be at every moment and um, so you know if you type into wolf Alpha the name of some satellite or the international Space Station or something it will co- predict for you where the International Space Station is gonna be three days from now. And it can do that quite accurately because the the physics of orbits and things is such that you just work out these equations, differential equations, and they tell you, sometimes they're kind of complicated, but they tell you just by math where the thing will be. Now, the math all breaks down if you have, if your thing fires a little rocket thruster, um, then you can make it change its orbit. But assuming it fired no thrusters, you can and assuming it fired no thrusters, assuming it didn't hit the upper atmosphere, hit the top of the atmosphere and start getting slowed down by that. Assuming none of those weird things happened, you can just by physics and math you can predict where the thing will be to pretty really very high accuracy. Okay, so that there are these GPS satellites and they're orbiting the Earth, and um, they you can predict where any one of those satellites will be. Okay, so then if you want to know where you are, you have to say, well, how far away am I from those satellites? So if you want to work out, um, if you say, where am I, if I'm somewhere on a line and I know I'm, uh, uh this distance from one end of the line, then I know where I am on that line. And if I, if I want to work out in, um, in, uh, uh, if, I, if I knew in two dimensions, if, if, I, if I knew I was somewhere on, on a flat plane, and I know I'm this distance from one, um, uh, I know I'm this distance. From, let, let's say I know I'm 10 miles away. Well, let's be more realistic. Let's say I'm 1,000 miles away from this point on the plane. Well, what points are 1,000 miles away from this point? The answer is it's a circle. The, the, the set of points that are 1,000 miles away or uh, is is a circle with a radius of a thousand miles around that point okay so let 's say I now know i 'm a thousand miles away from that point and i 'm eight hundred miles away from this other point over here okay so where am I if I know that i 'm a thousand miles away from this I know i 'm somewhere on the circle around that point i 'm eight hundred miles away from this I know i 'm somewhere on the circle eight hundred with radius eight hundred uh, miles around that point okay so i 've got these two circles and that means that with With these two circles, if I want to know, if I know I'm a thousand miles away from this one, 800 miles away from this one, I can work out where I can be. The answer is I must be on the circle around this point and the circle around this point. And so I must be on the intersection of those two circles. So if you have two circles, generically they will intersect in two points. Okay, so just from two, from knowing how far away you are from two things, you can work out at least with between two points, you can say, where am I relative to those circles? Well, if you want to break the ambiguity of those two points, you need a third fix. You need need to know the distance to a third point. And given those three points, you can work out, where am I exactly? So that's kind of the idea that GPS uses. It tries to work out how far away are you from three satellites. Usually it's five satellites or more that actually get used in a typical GPS receiver. Uh, Your GPS receiver has to work out uh, how far it is to each of those GPS satellites. The way it does it is actually pretty clever. The way it does it is, the GPS satellite is producing a sequence of zeros and ones. It's a very particular sequence. The satellite is producing a thing called the shift register sequence. And it actually is producing one of these that's millions of bits long. And one feature of the sequence, it has a very interesting mathematical property. If I were to look at some block of digits here, that block of digits only occurs once. In the sequence, up to a certain length, so it's saying if if I see one zero zero one zero one one, I know where in this sequence I am. So just by 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 seeing the block of digits, the piece of the, the piece of radio pulse that I see from the GPS satellite, I know where in the sequence of the GPS satellite I am. Okay, so every GPS satellite is sending out a shift register sequence. And those sequences repeat. Uh, let's see, the longer ones repeat every few months. I think the shorter ones repeat every day or two, maybe. Um, but within that uh time interval, you can tell exactly because there's a it's known, it's it's every GPS receiver knows when the GPS satellites are going to generate a um uh Um, a particular part of that sequence. So they see, oh, we saw 100100111. That means we are at this particular part of the sequence. That means we are at this particular uh, nanosecond in time relative to when the sequence started because the sequence is repeating that each bit is being delivered at, um, uh, takes, let's see, around um, a few nanoseconds, I think, corresponds to each bit. Now, actually i mentioned earlier the speed of light is roughly one foot per nanosecond so if you can tell how long it took light to get to you from the gps satellite to within one nanosecond you can tell where you are to within one nanosecond by knowing if you know if you can predict the orbit of the gps satellite so you know where the gps satellite is you know how far away you were from three gps satellites you know that to within a nanosecond to to, to within a foot then you can triangulate to work out your position within a foot so in principle gps can it's really limited by how uh how fast these bits are being transmitted and that's limited by the radio frequency that's being used and and so on but there are some other limitations um there are in fact for a long time there was a thing called the p mode gps the precision mode of gps and the precision mode of gps was actually blocked um, for a long time because it was used for military purposes to be able to have precise homing for things. Um, and the civilian GPS was accurate only to, I don't know what it was, 20, 30, 40 feet, something like that. Um, the Actually during during the Gulf War, it was the first time that P-Mode GPS was unblocked. Um, and uh, the, um, uh, um, But then a few years ago, the U.S. Defense Department decided to open up uh, precision GPS, um, so everybody can use it, um, and, that, um, and that allows GPS receivers to uh, to know positions to within a, a few feet. And there's a thing called differential GPS, which tries to use um, the uh, tries to kind of um, uh, use extra information from looking at um, uh, uh, looking at differences between satellite signals and things to work it out even more accurately than that. So that was a that was a long answer. You guys ask complicated questions, um, but I think that it was a, a fairly um, uh, the um, it was a fairly fairly decent answer to the is there a maximum location accuracy. The answer is I believe it's ultimately limited by the frequency of um uh, of this of these signals being sent. Um, it is a good question whether it is limited by the accuracy with which we can predict the orbits of GPS satellites, and I'm pretty sure it's not pretty sure that we can predict the the, the satellite positions to really very high accuracy there. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.